Today's Bible reading, um, the first one comes from Acts chapter 16, and I'll be reading uh, verses 11 through to 18. Acts chapter 16, starting at verse 11. From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight from Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of the district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptised, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, Come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned round and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. The second part of the reading comes from Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Morning, everyone. Today we begin a new series on the book of Philippians, which will take us all the way through to Easter. And this morning we're going to spend a few minutes just doing a race through the background to Philippians, which is part of the passage that that lovely lady just read to us. And for those of you who are visiting, that lovely lady is my wife. That's why I can talk about her like that. Um, and we'll do the first two verses of the letter this morning. Um, there are four messages in this passage, so put your seatbelts on. I'm not sure exactly where I'm going to go or end up with, but we'll see where we arrive. But before I pray, uh, there is a book by Nicky Gumbel. Nicky Gumbel is the founder of the Alpha Ministries. He wrote a book called A Life Worth Living, which is his exposition, nine talks on the book of Philippians. So if you'd like to grab a copy of that, you could be doing that in your own Bible study or your own time. The outline would be very similar and very close to what we're doing. It's not exactly the same, but it's pretty close to it. He's a very good Bible teacher, and so I commend that to you. You can get those at Kurong. Um, I'm not sure how much they are. Uh, whatever it is, I commend it to you. Let's pray. 
Thanks, Heavenly Father, that we have this opportunity to hear your word, to be taught your word, and to have the opportunity to respond to your word. Thank you for your promise that your word never goes forth without achieving the purpose for which you send it. So, Father, here we are, sitting at your feet, wanting to hear your voice speak to us through this part of your scriptures. We ask your spirit would take the word of God and shape our hearts, our minds, our thinking and our choices to the honour and glory of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. And everybody said? Probably the the second most significant discovery in the 20th century, archaeologically speaking, is the discovery of a tomb. What's the most famous tomb that was discovered last century? Tutankhamun, that's correct. What's the second most famous one? It's near Philippi. It's Philip of Macedon. He's the father of Alexander the Great. You've heard of Alexander the Great. Thank you. So Philip found, discovered, he wasn't the first to discover it, but he suddenly, he was a master strategist like his son, and uh, surrounding Philippi, it's uh, in one of the biggest gaps in this mountain range, and it's like therefore the gateway to the east and to the west. It's surrounded by gold and silver mines. It's strategically located, and it's very rich in volcanic soils and uh, therefore very rich farming area. Philip founded the city of Philippi, and hence it's named after him, Philip of Macedon. Um, <clears throat> And we discovered that. You can Google that and you can see some of the, uh, the remaining tombs that have been discovered just outside the city of Philippi. Um, lots of generals throughout the centuries before Jesus uh, fought battles there, famous battles and generals that you would have heard of. Um, because man had his eye on that particular location. Well, God also had his eye on that location and he also had his eye on a man who was going to found a church there. Philippi was made a Roman colony, which means that they didn't have um, a governor, they didn't have a proconsul, they didn't have any of the Roman hierarchy over them. They had a fair bit of freedom, but they had magistrates and consuls, but they were self-governing and they were a miniature Rome and they wore Roman clothes, they had Roman laws, they had Roman customs, Roman temples, they were a miniature Rome and therefore very attractive for some people. Um, Jews were not, well at one stage the Jews were forbidden because um, on the gate that was the archway into the city there was a sign which was apparently written which says uh, no foreign religions are permitted within the city limits and they've discovered the foundations to that gateway, you can look all that up on Google and see what it looks like or if you've got a study Bible, some study Bibles have pictures of that in it. So here is this Roman colony strategically located, now with a multinational population, and God had his eye on it, and he also had his eye on the person that he was going to use to start this church, the Apostle Paul. And the issue was, the Apostle Paul was 650 kilometres away. So God was going to work to move the man that he chose. There's a second century description of the Apostle Paul, which I find fascinating. He was short, balding, one eyebrow, and his eyes sort of met in the middle as well, and he was bow-legged. Strange-looking fellow, wasn't he? 
God can use anybody. God can even use a donkey, as we learned a couple of weeks ago. So in this passage that Rhonda read to us, we are going to do our skip through. And uh, if you've got your Bible, you might want to turn to, let's go with Acts 15 to start with, verses 36 to the end. You're familiar with this story, so I'm just going to skip read it for you and with you this morning. Sometime later, after the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas said, let's go back and visit the believers in the towns where we preach the word of the Lord to them and let's see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take along a guy called John, John Mark, whom we now call Mark. And Paul said, no, we're not taking him with us because last time on the first missionary journey, he abandoned us. He deserted. And so he's not suitable to join the missionary team. Barnabas insisted because it's actually his cousin. And Barnabas was a man who wanted to give John Mark a second chance. The apostle Paul insisted that he was not suitable. They had a very sharp disagreement. They had a falling out. Barnabas took John Mark, went to Cyprus. Paul took Silas, a new companion, a new partner in ministry, and they headed off to revisit the churches. And that's where it begins. I, want you to, I wanted to point out to you that in the God in the process of responding to this division, this split in relationship. Here is a very godly um, brothers in Christ who had served together, who had brought unity to the churches they had just planted, now having a disagreement which actually divided them. And the reality is that in life, differences are inevitable. We have different personalities, different backgrounds, different experiences, different likes, all the rest. Differences are inevitable. Difficulties are certainly probable. We don't always hear properly. We don't always say it clearly. We misunderstand. We make assumptions, whatever. We jump to conclusions. Differences are inevitable. Difficulties are probable. And divisions are therefore possible. And even in the midst of divisions, as bad as they are, God still achieves his purposes, and God does exactly that here. That he's going to take Paul and Silas, and he's going to start the church in Philippi and other churches. And God's going to continue to work with Barnabas um, and John Mark. And though you never read of them again in the book of Acts, you do read of them in some of Paul's letters, Corinthians, Philippians, Galatians. That God continued to use them, even though they had this sharp falling out. And probably years later, they may have had some sort of reconciliation. Differences are inevitable. Difficulties are probable. Divisions are also possible and probable. And we need to do all that we can to avoid them. But God is not defeated. uh, Paul and Silas, as they travel on, come return to a place where Paul was stoned and beaten up and he discovers a new young man there by the name of Timothy. This is Acts chapter 16. They came to Lystra. The believers at Lystra in verse 2 spoke well of this man, Timothy. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey. And because he had um, a Jewish mum but a Greek father, he had not been circumcised according to Jewish customs. And so Paul circumcised him in order that he could take him without offence to the Jewish colonies, to the Jewish nation and to the people so that he could present the gospel. So Paul has a new partner in ministry and he now also has a new helper. 
In the process of them traveling in verses six to 12, Paul gets a new vision. This is a remarkable story that we've looked at over the last couple of weeks or a couple of weeks ago in the life of our church. That's where the apostle Paul wanted to go. He was heading northwest and he wanted to go west to the coast, to Ephesus and places like that. And the spirit of God forbade him. It's interesting. He wants to present the gospel. He wants to found churches. And God says, no, timing's not right. So he decided then he wanted to go north, up into Galatia and other places like that. No. The Apostle Paul doesn't stand still. He keeps moving. I'm keen to do what God wants me to do. He's saying no to that. And he's saying no to that God guiding through closed doors. And the Apostle Paul had to stop doing what God said no to before he could find out what God was going to say yes to. So too for us. We have to stop doing what God says no to in order for us to hear what God is going to say yes to. The Apostle Paul continues on that northwesterly direction, journey, and he comes to a place called Troas, ancient Troy, where he has a dream. And in the dream, he sees a man of Macedonia in the dream saying, come over here to Macedonia, to Greece, and help us present the gospel here. Paul gets up the next morning and shares the dream, and Luke, who has now joined them, um, and Timothy, uh, sorry, and, yep, and Silas, those four, discuss this dream together, and the Bible says, and they concluded, God wants us to go there. That's what all this no to that and no to that was about, is God wants us to go here. And so God guides us often through circumstances, in all sorts of ways. Uh, without going into too much detail on this, God guides us through the commands of Scripture, God guides us through the compelling of his own spirit within us, tugging us, suggesting things to us. God guides us through the counsel of other saints, other Christians. God guides us through circumstances. But God also guides us through a thing called common sense. And the Apostle Paul and the team certainly exercise that here. When they get on the boat, leave Troas and go to Samothrace, which is an island port stopover on the way, then they move on to Neapolis, which is the port of Philippi. They don't start there. They move further inland, another 10, 20 kilometers, and they go to the strategic location of Philippi. Common sense. Where would be a good place to plant a church? Well, in a place which is, well, today it has major rail intersections and major roads junctions right in Philippi. So in the ancient world, this was a significant location. Spirit of God didn't tell them to do that. As far as we know, we're not told that. They concluded that. They thought about that. So we need to think about and be strategic in our thinking of how can we present the gospel in significant and helpful locations of where God has placed us as God makes his will clear and known. The Apostle Paul, the scripture says, spent then very sensibly, common sense, the next few days simply walking around Philippi, getting the lay of the land, asking questions. Where's the synagogue? Uh, there is no synagogue. Not in Philippi. No foreign religions are to be introduced into Philippi. <clears throat> and also it means there's no synagogue, not simply because of the Roman forbading it, but you needed 10 Jewish men in order to start a Jewish synagogue. If you didn't have 10 Jewish men, sorry ladies, the ladies didn't count in those days. Sad reality. But you could have a prayer meeting. And so they inquired about that. Is there a prayer meeting? Yes, there is a prayer meeting. It's outside the city gate and it's out by the river Gangites, which still flows today. 
and there you'll find some Jewish women who will gather together to pray. So on the Sabbath, Paul and the team go out there. They find the location to this, it'd be the equivalent of the laundromat where they did their washing and all that sort of stuff. So the ladies are gathering there in that location to pray. Apostle Paul turns up with the team, starts talking to them, and he presents the gospel to them in a conversational way, the passage says. And then God does something remarkable that God often does and which he needs to continue to do and with us. He opens Lydia's heart. He helped her to feel and to understand the truth of the gospel. That's what God did for me, January 15th. 1972, three, 1973. On this one afternoon, suddenly, the lights went on, and I went, I get it. I understand what I have to do. I have to repent, believe, and receive Jesus, and God promises to forgive me for my sin and give me eternal life, and I won't be punished, I won't go to hell, I'll be set free. It was as clear as that for me, but it took me months to get to that point. Lots of conversations, reading the Bible, reading gospel tracts. Well, for Lydia, here is this lady on a spiritual journey. She also came to faith in stages, and many of you would have. And people usually do. It really is the exception where it's not some sort of process. For Lydia, she is from a Gentile background. She has an incredibly successful business. She sells purple cloth. That's the number one color for Roman garments. Guess where they sell a lot of Roman garments, Philippi? So she's a smart lady. She goes to Philippi where her business is booming. She's a wealthy lady. She lives in this very large mansion where later on she will invite four men to come and stay at her house because she has the room to accommodate them. A wealthy lady. And God saves her. And in the process, he, uh, she comes from a Gentile background to now a God-fearer. Now a person who has become aware of there is one true and living God, who's the Jewish God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, and so she's now gathered together with them in a prayer meeting. Then she hears the gospel. Then she becomes to faith because God opened her heart. And the passage goes on to say, then she gets baptised. And then she becomes a, probably the church is starting in her house. The Apostle Paul then stays there for, probably for a few weeks with the team. And again, on the next Sabbath, as they're going out again to the prayer meeting and then going through the process again of trying to start the churches to present the gospel, on the journey going out, the passage Rhonda read to us, there was a slave girl. She's not Jewish. She has no rights. She has no freedom. She is owned by some owners, probably one master, but then perhaps a group. But she had some sort of spiritual ability. The Bible says that she was demonized. She had an evil spirit living inside of her or attached to her or something that gave her the ability to be able to tell the future. She was clairvoyant. And the owners allowed her to do that and made them a whole lot of money. So they were quite happy for her to be, you know, a slave and to be demonized and because they were using her for their own financial gain. The Apostle Paul, in going out to the... Uh, the prayer meeting, has this girl follow him. She's on the opposition. She's in Satan's kingdom. She's demonized. But what she's saying is true. These men are servants of the Most High God and they come to tell you the way of salvation. And she follows them. These men are servants of the Most High God and they've come to tell you the way of salvation. And we think, yeah, that's true. 
The Apostle Paul gets annoyed. Why does he get annoyed? Well, number one, you don't want the devil as your advertising campaign, do you? You don't want the opposition um, promoting you. So he gets annoyed in his spirit. The thing that we don't know, and that's not a bad guess, is it's the tone in which he was saying this, whether it was sarcastically or, or whatever it was, it wasn't helpful. Paul turns to her, and with the authority that he has, that we have, if you follow the Lord Jesus, you have this same authority. That's not in us, it's in him, the Lord Jesus. He turns to her and says to the demon, come out of her in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And immediately the demon leaves, which means she loses the ability to tell the future. She is still a slave, still owned by these owners, but she can no longer make profit for them. Bible doesn't say it, but every commentator basically says it, and she probably becomes a believer. It's an assumption, but I think it's a, a good assumption. So who's in the church at Philippi so far? An incredibly wealthy business lady from a Gentile background who became a proselyte, who's now a Christian, and the slave girl who's part of the community of Philippi, so probably Greek or Roman by background. The owners are furious. They arrest the Apostle Paul and Silas. It's interesting that Luke and Timothy don't get arrested, probably because of their background. Luke is Gentile. Timothy is half Gentile. The two Jews get arrested, Paul and Silas. Their trumped-up charges are made against them. They've told that they're breaking Roman law by founding a new religion and bringing it into Philippi, that they have you know, made them lose money and all of this. And so... The magistrates, the local magistrates, inappropriately and unjustly and ignorantly take the Apostle Paul and Silas and have them beaten, whipped with rods to the point where it's not just bruising, but it's bleeding. It cuts the flesh. How do I know that? Well, because later on, the jailer is going to wash their wounds. <clears throat> then they are taken after the beating and the thrashing and they're given to the Roman jailer. And they, uh, he is given very specific instructions. Place these men under top security. So he takes them and he places them in the inner cell of the Philippian jail, which archaeologists have also discovered. And you can see that on Google. They put, they put him in there and they don't just put him in the inner cell. They have chains to the wall and they have stocks where your legs would be placed as far apart as they could possibly go, and they would be locked into position. So it's incredibly uncomfortable, and you're chained to the wall as well, as all the prisoners, I assume, are in that jail. <clears throat> About midnight, they're not sleeping. What are they doing? They're praying and singing. One commentator says, that's what we should do as Christians, as followers of the Lord Jesus. If you can't sleep, don't count sheep, talk to the shepherd. <laughs> I like that. And they're singing and praying, and the other prisoners are listening. There's no TV, there's no entertainment, there's nothing else to do. They're bored out of their brains. And nobody can sleep under these conditions anyway, until you're totally exhausted. So they're singing and listening. And then God intervenes. Earthquakes in Philippi are very common. Not unusual at all, but this is an unusual earthquake. This earthquake hits the jail, rattles the walls. The doors fall off, but the walls don't fall down. 
and the chains come loose. The jailer, who was woken undoubtedly by the earthquake, takes a light, comes running in and sees all the doors to all of the prisons off. And what does he think? They've gone. The prisoners have escaped. He takes out his sword because Roman law would be that whatever penalty those guys had, he had to fulfill. And if escapees like top security ones like Paul and Silas escaped, it would be the death penalty. So he's going to commit suicide. He's on the brink of entering eternity. And Paul must be able to see him somehow in the light, sings out to him and says, we're all here. So the chains haven't come out of the wall. They've been loosened. And none of the prisoners have escaped. He comes running in. He bows down before Paul and Silas and he's so relieved. He must have been hearing. He must have been singing. He must have done some background check or maybe the talk through the town or whatever it was. He's got a question for Paul. His question is not, how do I become rich? His question is not, how do I get healthy? His question is the most important question of all. How do I get forgiveness? What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be relieved of the guilt and the burden that I have? There's a man in process who's become aware of his own guilt and sin. Lord, what have, Paul, what have I got to do? Is there anything I can do to be saved, to be rescued, to be delivered from the burden and penalty of my sin. The Apostle Paul remarkably and lovingly says to him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. First reference, I think, to the household. Believe, trust, rely on, commit your life to him and receive him. Jail is very pleased with this news. He takes the Apostle Paul and Silas and he undoes the chain and he takes them, these top security prisoners, and he takes them at midnight into his house where he bathes them. He washes the wounds, gets the bloodstains off and bandages them up and his wife comes out and provides a meal and they eat and his kids and the slaves in his household, if there are any of those as well, his household are out. They're awake. And the Apostle Paul does what the Apostle Paul always does. He presents the gospel to them. They all hear it. They all heard the word of the Lord. And that night, they all get baptized. There's no six-week delay. There's no six-month delay. It's believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized. And bang, they are. Now, the passage doesn't say this, but I imagine then... The jailer, in the very early hours of the morning, take Paul and Silas and they take him back to the jail and chain him up again because that's his orders. He's got to keep them under tight security. Magistrates the next morning say, uh, give him in orders, uh, you can release those men. And that's when there's a big shock. Look how God works. The Apostle Paul says, not for his own sake, but for some other reason, we are Roman citizens. Paul and Silas are Roman citizens. It's illegal to arrest a Roman citizen without charging him. And it is, I think it's the death penalty, if you beat a Roman citizen without authorization. The magistrates have made a huge faux pas. They're the leading authority in town. And if this gets out, they're dead. So they are panic-stricken. 
They humble themselves before the Paul and Silas and they want to escort them out of town and please don't say this to anybody. And the Apostle Paul insists. He now has something over them. Don't touch Lydia. Don't touch the slave girl. Don't touch the Roman soldier. It's safety and security in the city of Philippi for this little church which has just started. Apostle Paul leaves the jail. He goes to the house of Lydia prays and teaches and then he will move on the church in philippi has commenced and it's god working through his remarkable circumstances takes a man 650 kilometers away and says no to that no to that yes to this communicates through a dream they put two and two together and think god's in this they're obedient to that they come across they go to Philippi, not to Neapolis and not to any other place, but to this significantly located little village, little, little town, city, um, where they follow through strategically and sensibly. Lord, where do we find the people to talk to? Who is interested in the truth? Go to a prayer meeting. God shows up again and opens the heart of Lydia, the wealthy business lady. God shows up again and delivers a slave girl and sets her free. God shows up again, rattles the jail walls and a, a, a jailer comes free. God turning up and God working through his people. God sometimes doing the extraordinary and sometimes God just working through the ordinary to achieve his purposes. Paul leaves about 10 years later, he leaves Luke there, by the way, and Luke will stay there for about the next seven years as the pastor of Philippi. Because in Acts 20, you will find that when Apostle Paul is heading back to Jerusalem, he goes through Philippi and he picks Luke up. You'll find that as you read through the book of Acts, whenever the we section turns up, Luke writes Acts and sometimes he says we, which means he's with it, and sometimes it's simply Paul and Silas and company, not including him. So you can locate where Luke is so he appears to have been in Philippi for about the next seven years. The Apostle Paul is now again back in jail, probably in Rome. Because he can't work as a tent maker, funds are running low. God's in this again, as he will say through this letter, God using him in this location, even though he's jailed up. And the Philippian church, as they had on previous occasions, gets news of this and they want to send finances to support him. So they send their pastor, Epaphroditus, and they send him off to Paul with funds, which Paul then wants to write a thank you note, the book of Philippians. He writes to the church, a church which doesn't have any doctrinal issues that we know of, nothing major, doesn't have any ethical, moral issues that we're aware of. They are a godly, strong little group, a colony of heaven in the colony of Rome in a very strategic location, with a strange mixture of rich business people, people from slaves, people from the jail, Romans, Greeks, Jews. Funny family, all together. Who would do that? God. Look around. Look to the people left and right. We're a funny lot. Different backgrounds, different interests, different hobbies. What's God doing? Planting a church where everybody is welcome. That's why it's important for us that we deal with our, cope with our differences, deal with our difficulties, and work as hard as we can not to be divided.
Paul writes to them. And the Apostle Paul transforms something. I've got about a couple of minutes and then I'll finish. The Apostle Paul writes to this little church and in the first two verses he takes a very common introductory thing that they had in the ancient world, letters. Communication has changed, hasn't it, over the years? You're old enough. Some of you are old enough. This is how we used to communicate. Um, You ever heard of something called a telegram? Who's received a telegram? Thousands of you. Faxes? Do they still exist? Do they? We don't have one. Smoke? Drums? (laughs) Letters, scans, snail mail when I say letters. But these days it's FaceTime, emails, text messages. Communication has changed, hasn't it? Well, in the ancient world, they used to write letters, scrolls. The most common letter that we have discovered archaeologically is just ones that are about this size. About that size, a bit shorter. About 12 inches square. Piece of parchment. And you read in the New Testament of 2 John and 3 John, they're written on a piece of parchment about that size. But if you wanted to write something more significant, then it was written on a scroll. And you know this, I'm sure. In the ancient, what we do is how do you identify the sender? Because you don't write your name until the end, usually, on a letter. But emails, of course, it appears right up front. And on letters that you send, On the address, you've got the address of who it's going to, and on the back, you have the sender. So you know immediately, you've got an idea of who this is coming from. Well, the ancient world, how they did that, is they followed a very simple pattern. As you began to read the scroll, the very first bit always had, who is it from? The author. Who is it to? The recipients. And a greeting. Here is one ridiculous one, but this is a Roman one. And what they did is they amplified that. Who is it from? It's, we would just say our own personal name, but the Romans love to expand with their titles. Here is the letter. Tiberius Claudius Caesar Augustus, Germanicus Imperator, Pontifex Maximus, Holder of the Tribucian Power, Consul Desnut, to the city of Alexandria, greeting. You got three or four lines of him with his titles, That's how important he is. What does the Apostle Paul do? Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. Who is it to? Well, the NIV translate it appropriately as to God's holy people. If you have an older Bible, it'll say to the saints, which is a lovely word. To God's holy people in Christ Jesus in Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of time, let me just point out to you quickly that Paul has taken a very traditional, simple thing and has injected it with a whole lot of Christian theological meaning. Almost every word or phrase is worth pausing and meditating on. Don't have time. I want you to point out, though, the six couplets that he's written together. Paul and Timothy, the authors. Timothy's not the author. Paul is, because when you read Philippians, you'll say, I this and I that, not we. So why does Paul, elderly, Jewish, gifted, 
strong leader, strong personality, include Timothy, younger, Greek, timid, and not as gifted or as strong as the Apostle Paul. Why does he bring him to, why does he put them together? To encourage and to affirm. And that's what will come out in the letter as well. Paul and Timothy. God using different people, different personalities to achieve his purposes. He says that they are servants of Christ Jesus and he writes to the saints. Servants and saints. We get that round the wrong other way. Sometimes we say it's from Saint Paul and it's to God's servants in Philippi. And Paul doesn't do that servant i'm a servant of the lord jesus and i'm writing to the saints not as the king james bible inserts for different reasons but they inserted two words which are not in the original text and it's in italics in the authorized versions it says called to be saints that to be is not there called saints it's significant it's theologically profound a saint <clears throat> Not like it is in the Catholic Church. You've got to be dead and you've got to perform two miracles. You've got to answer somebody's prayer after you're dead. The Bible calls us, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, you're a saint. You are somebody who has been set apart by God for God. You're living in a colony in the midst of a secular world to be God's people, an example to the world around us. That's what it means to be a saint. Turn to the person next to you if you're sitting next to somebody and call them. Good morning, I'm St. Darrell. Just try that. <laughs> Just use that. Just get comfortable using your title. <clears throat> Next couplet, they are in Christ, which is the Apostle Paul's favourite theological term. 160, 170 times he uses it in the New Testament. We are in Christ. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. We are adopted and we are abiding in him. We are the branches in the vine in Christ. That's who we are. And that's to permeate our thinking and our choices. And while we are in Christ, we are also there in Philippi. We are in Christ in the real world. So think about that. You are in Christ in Sunnybank District Baptist Church. You are in Christ and your place of residence. You are in Christ and your place of employment. Wherever you are, wherever God places you and takes you, you are in Christ. And you are his representative if you name his name. And you are to live for him. As saints, God has set us apart. We are not to withdraw into a church or a monastery or to withdraw from our culture like some do. We are to live in our culture, in our location, and to live distinctly according to the opportunities that we have. Next couplet, overseers and deacons. Paul takes two very secular terms, and it simply means leaders and helpers. They're not sacred, they're not Christian terms, they're secular terms, overseers and deacons, leaders and helpers. There's distinction, distinct roles within the church, and it starts right there in the beginning, right early ages of the New Testament. And finally... Well, not finally. Fifth, grace and peace. That's a sermon in itself right there. The Apostle Paul takes the Greek form of greeting, which is karain. Sorry, it won't make sense if I don't do this. Naughty for doing it. And the Greek word for um, grace is charis. 
Sounds similar, doesn't it? So instead of saying greeting, the Apostle Paul says grace to remind us that we are the recipients of his grace. The unmerited, undeserved favour and love of God is given to us. Grace and peace. Peace is the Jewish normal greeting, shalom, which is a beautiful word and it has a whole context of meaning and another time we'll talk about it more. Paul puts them together, grace and peace to you from who? From the Father and from the Son, the sixth and final couplet, linked, equal, God the Father, God the Son. Let's close with this summary. God's plan was to plant a colony in Philippi, a colony of heaven in that location. That's still his plan. The church is to be a colony of heaven. God can use anybody, and he wants to. He wants to use you, just like he used Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke and Barnabas and John Mark. We, like the Apostle Paul, need to stop doing what he says no to before we probably will hear what he says yes to. Sometimes the winds of circumstances can blow against us, and sometimes hurtful divisions can happen. They are to be avoided. Uh, but even in the midst of life's difficulties, our eyes are to be on God. You're in control. Work this out. That's a process of how people come to faith, like it was for Lydia. But God will guide us to people who are ready to hear about him. Finally, God's got a funny family, and we're part of it. God loves variety, apparently, diversity, and he loves putting the different people together. Though it can be difficult, he has a plan and a purpose. So in Philippi, it's a Jewish proselyte, it's a Greek slave and it's a Roman jailer. Female and male, young and old, slave and free, wealthy and poor, together as the colony of heaven because of Jesus. And God has every intention of including you in his family and he invites you to do so just like the jailer, more than willing and open zone. Let's pray together. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this truth, the reminder of this. You're a God who is at work in our world, that you select workers, you direct those workers to specific locations, and that you've placed us in the locations where we find ourselves. You're the sovereign God who is at work, the sovereign God who is in control, the sovereign God who turns up and does the incredible, but also the God who is always present in the ordinary. Heavenly Father, thank you that we are in Christ, wherever we're located physically. Help us to live, to be saints and servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, for his name, for his glory. Amen.